Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good morning, Trish. What have you been doing? Well, I don't think you're going to guess. Do you want to try and guess? It's not another cock on a cushion situation for me. <laughs> Is it again? It's You're not, not going to drag something out of your no. home economics past to oh me to look at and gosh. try and like, like that embroidery to, cockerel. We, exactly. We just have to clarify it for anybody who didn't listen to that episode. We're talking about some shocking embroidery I did when I was about 14 years old. But anyway, yes, that's, a, that's for another shot. time. No, I tell you what I've been doing. You're not going to like it. I've been sprouting. Oh, what is those? <laughs> is it the nose hair? It's Should not, we buy a chin- nose hair trimmer conversation yeah, no, again, not, which we said we wouldn't have hairs. on the podcast? No, okay. it's not the chin hairs, but unfortunately they, they, they've been what sprouting been too. No, al- alfalfa, I can't say it properly, alfalfa sprouts. A What's friend that? of mine gave me a jar of these little seeds and she said, water them every day, drain them off and you will have like magic this abundance. Beans. Like magic beans, was it, Trish? You're so gullible. I love it. No, I love it. And you get this jar full of these very nutritious, super foody sprouts and you sprinkle them on your salads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You then take them out and you sort of unmatch them. (laughs) They get a bit stuck together and you put them on your salads and they're really good for you. Can you not just tell how much clever I've got? Is it like when you used to grow cress in an egg when you were 10 at school? Yes. Thing. It is. It is. The only thing you have to be mindful because if you don't rinse them morning and night, it gets a bit whiffy. You know oh. <laughs> what I think about whiffy smells in the kitchen. Bit so gassy. This is a very 1970s hippie it is situation. A bit. It's a bit Barbara it is Good, a bit. isn't it? Good life. Well, I think it is. Have good you got life. dungarees to life. go with this? I haven't got dungarees. I've got some nice little t-shirts that I think Barbara would have worn. But I think next stop is making some wine because they made wine, didn't they? Out of peas and things on the Good Life. Shall I have a go at that next? God's sake. You won't like that either, will no, you? No, it's ridiculous. You live quite yeah. near supermarket, yeah. Trish, if you want me to help <laughs> you there. Send someone around, pick you up and take you to the special falfa, falfa, falfa aisle. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Okay, it's time for us to get our chat on. Trish, are you ready? Firstly, I must ask you, how Mm -hmm. are you feeling about appearing in Waitrose Weekend magazine as we did recently? We did, didn't we? Well, I think it was rather fabulous. We got a lovely big picture and a lovely big interview. And what was particularly (laughs) special for me about it, because obviously my dad loves looking at these things whenever there's a bit of coverage. And what was so brilliant was we were on a spread next to one of his heroes, who was an Irish singer called Daniel O'Donnell. Oh. And Daniel O'Donnell was on the same page. And we got about four times as much space as Daniel O'Donnell. But like all parents, he would have been more excited about that, wouldn't he? Well, us, I, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, probably was. <laughs> Bless, him. Well, Bless him. Anyway, it was good. 
it was a pinnacle. I think it's a pinnacle for us. And thank God you are married to a photographer, Trish, because that's mm. <laughs> that's what made the picture so good. So mm. welcome to all our new listeners who may have read about us in the magazine who are tuning in. We'll try not to disappoint you. We've got quite a few delights to share today, haven't we, Trish? Well, we do. We're going to be speaking to the best-selling author, Kate Moss. And that's Moss with an E, isn't it? A bit like mm. uh, Anne with an E, which you know I love, Anne of Green Gables. Mm. Yes, that TV programme you're always going on about. Well, similar, but obviously our guest is far more impressive than yes. that. She's written eight novels and short story collections and has sold more than 5 million books in 38 wow. languages, was founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction and has also been a carer of both her parents and her mother-in-law, an experience she has written really movingly about in her new book, An Extra Pair of Hands. Yes, that surname's brilliant, though, because I, I read that she once got a table in a really fabulous Michelin-starred restaurant because the maitre d' thought a 90s supermodel would be having Mm. dinner (laughs) with the man who created Star Wars because at the time, her agent was called George Lucas. Can you imagine George Lucas and Kate Moss booking a table? What a pairing that would be. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't put them together, naturally, would you? Mm. (laughs) Actual George Lucas, actual Kate Moss. Anyway, back to the show. We are also going to be talking about work wives or spouses, whatever you wish to call them, in How to Win at Midland life later on after our interview have you got a work wife do you need one and who was the best one you ever had and could they be the saving of our sanity now that we're all gradually heading back into the workplace and how would you cope if you didn't have one if you work from home Mm, well I hope you're going to be saying nice things about me Lorraine what you is my work wife (laughs) you're my you're, you're more like my health and safety officer. I am, aren't I? Work, yes. Trish, you I have me to doing look after you. Yes. Yeah. yes. You're a d- danger and a menace to yourself. I, I am, yes. <laughs> but I am hoping that by the time we get to that part of the show, I'll be a little bit more amiable and affable and, dare I say it, agreeable. I know you like me to be more agreeable, Trish. Mm. Because first up today, we're going to be jibber jabbering about nice things that have happened to us this week. Nice things, mm. Trish. Nice thing. Well, I love it when we challenge your inner cynic. Yes. So I think we should probably do it before you change your mind. So, Lorraine, I've decided to be all about micro niceness this week, Ooh. which is, <laughs> in case you're wondering, another name for little acts of kindness that have given me a bit of joy. For some reason, I've been feeling extra positive this week. I think I must be on the, the exact right dose of HRT. <laughs> <laughs> which Neil likes to call my anti-madness cream. Yeah, and I'm smearing on it on the in the bar. Cream <laughs> the the yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, sometimes I quite often find myself feeling internally cross about things. So I decided this week I was going to that change is, that my That is mindset. the nature of a Trish, though, the yeah, Well, it is, a little Trish, a little, a little sort of... But I decided, right, I'm going to change my mindset and see if that can work, so okay. be more positive. So Did the other day, well, I'll, I'll give you a little example. Neil, Neil was in a right old flat because he was running late. He'd taken a day off work to go and pursue one of his many hobbies, which I shan't go into at this point, which obviously made me feel grumpy because all right you just take a day off and go off and do your hobby one don't you and he was all in a flap and I knew he wouldn't go with he wouldn't have breakfast he'd forget to bring some lunch because where he goes there's nothing there you you know you have to bring some lunch Neil the third child (laughs) 
exactly. So I thought I can either sit here being all sort of about it or I can make him breakfast and I made him some lunch and I sent him off with it. And he was so chuffed. He was really, really pleased about it. And it just calmed him down. And it made me feel happier for the rest of the day and less grumpy about the fact that he'd gone off to do this thing. So I think it's quite, quite a positive thing. You changed the narrative, didn't you? Yes, basically. And when I say narrative... I'm going to tell you about the ego, Trish, because I've been reading this and what you've just done as an example of Mm -hmm. your ego working against you. And when I say ego, I don't mean like showing off or anything. Mm. Just put that um, explanation aside. So I've been reading a book by the holistic psychologist. Her name is Mm -hmm. Dr. Nicole LaPrera and Mm -hmm. her book is called How to Do the Work. It's been a New York Times yeah, I think we've mentioned it a couple. You've of mentioned times that before. before. Yes. Yeah. So what happens with the ego is it creates a sort of defensive state which we live in because it's protecting us. We're we're expecting things to happen exactly the same way, so we react to them in exactly the same way. The ego protects us from any outcomes that could be different from that. So we just keep mm-hmm. doing the same thing again and again because it's about us controlling it because we're fearful of how we feel yeah. if it goes out of control or if we have to feel uncomfortable. So we listen to it a lot and it just keeps us in this pattern constantly of thinking, well, mm. it's safe to react like this because I always react like this. So yeah. when you change it, it's a kind of a bit of an awakening so when you do something like mm-hmm. that, you you train the brain to think, actually, that's not how the response is. And, and also what the ego does is tell you loads of stories that are nothing to do with the other person and how they're mm-hmm. being and how they're behaving. So how Neil is and he's going to mm-hmm. do this and he's going to do that. You've told all that story in your head to protect yourself from feeling uncomfortable with things. Yeah. And you probably don't need to do that. And you could react in a very different way the ego is a consciousness built on on our learned behavior and how we Mm. were brought up and our expected things that are happening so I find that quite interesting so you are right that kind of micro niceness change yes has retrained your brain I just think in relationships you can just get very complacent and obviously it's the taking each other for granted and it's just those sort of small actions and actually we had a really nice while talking of husbands we had a really nice post on the Facebook group from Kim who's talking about her husband and she says we often often feel like our other halves don't help but hinder our peri process and I often feel like my husband doesn't get me and my peri but I have to say he is always there he listens to my rants my mad ideas my decisions he always hugs me and tells me it's okay we will get through this he's the first to say he doesn't understand my irrational (laughs) behavior but he is my rock and he regularly makes me laugh tells me he loves me and my bum so there we are he loves her bum. bum Kim's husband loves her bum isn't that nice I don't know how I feel about the bum bit, but I like (laughs) like the other bits of Kim's husband. So tell me something nice that you've done or has happened to you this week. (laughs) Well, Will Smith, bear with me, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, It's random, but it gets to the point. Famous actor Will Smith. Yes, Will Smith, Men in Black. So this week, I have had a particularly exhausting week. I've had no exercise, and one day was so busy that... I accidentally had a piece of chocolate cake for breakfast and I know that's not a good thing (laughs) but I was just getting myself into a bit of a state and then I saw this very funny post Will Smith had put up saying I'm in the worst shape of my life after lockdown Mm. and and actually there was a survey that said women who are five foot three that's me well five two and a half have gained up to half a stone due to lockdown stress so that's you and me stone heavier together Trish Mm. Um, and I was getting into a sort of kind of thinking oh 
God, why am I all stressed about this? What have I got to do? I should write a list and I should do Pilates and then I should do it. And then I realized that I could actually be nice to myself. Yes. And do what I'm calling. I'm changing the metrics of my manic activity. So I'm in a pattern <laughs> constantly yeah. of sorting my body out and my mind out and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, actually, maybe I don't need to do anything at all this week. Mm. Um, but if mm. I change the metrics of why I do it, then maybe then I will be being a bit nicer to myself. So maybe the metric is mm. how, how I sleep, not what I weigh, how fit I feel or how far I can run or how far I can swim. Maybe the mm. metric is about whether I'm a little bit calmer in the morning. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, so I just thought I'm, that was my niceness experience. It's yes. changing my manic metrics a mindset. Yes. You like, yeah, you're quite good at the old intellectualizing of these, of these theories and ideas I'm and things. Cleverer than you you are clever than me because I'm just going to give you another one of my silly examples, which was just not being cross with people in the swimming pool. That's what I would <laughs> boil it so, down to. <laughs> so I went to the pool on, on Wednesday and there yes. were loads of people in there. It was like half seven. I was like, oh, God, it's so it annoying. Busy. They're all going to get in my way. And of course they didn't. And they were lovely and it was all fine. And actually, That's because you were telling yourself that story exactly, again was, in your head. Before I got into the pool, I was like, right, shut up. Don't be ridiculous. Getting it on. And do you know what? It was lovely. And I had a really relaxing, lovely swim and nobody got in my way. It was lovely. So I felt very, very pleased about that. But swimmers say are something the best people. Uh, clever and intellectual about that yeah i'm going to uh, i'm going to mention some laughter yoga something i learned <laughs> from once attending a laughter yoga class which obviously just makes I you did. laugh saying it because it's because so <laughs> everyone said who would be the best person to send mm. to a laughter yoga class the person least likely to do yoga or or laugh out loud so i did laughter yoga and it just basically is is ridiculous mm. it's a little bit ridiculous but you know that thing when it's going through your head, oh my goodness, all these people are going to get in my way. This is going to be a nightmare. If mm. you just smile at them, mm. laughter yoga, then you feel oh. much better. It's a physio- oh. it's a cognitive thing. It's a physiological nice. thing. You feel a bit like a twit doing it, obviously, yeah. like a grinning nerd, but you don't have to go too far, Trish. You can do one of your, that, like that, but one of your little... <laughs> No, not going in. No, one of your little smiles, and then you you do feel better. And if you just keep doing it, not all the time, because you will look like a loon. But yeah, it does actually change yes. the way so people react to you as well. It is also you're calling it laughter yoga. I might call that smiling. Yeah, I had to learn it though, Tristan. <laughs> you have to learn how to coming from. All right. Well, I it. did have a little smile this week because I was a little bit touched because I had a little bit of a rant about my. 80-year-old parents getting a Jack Russell puppy because I don't really want a Jack Russell mm, at any mm. point in my life. And Lorna on Facebook got in touch saying, hello, I'm just listening to your podcast and I was listening to the one where you were talking about being worried about your elderly parents getting a dog. My mum is 90 and has a wee dog. She's got a wee dog. Mm. Um, she is arranged with the Cinnamon Trust that they will take her dog and find it a good home if she can't manage or dies. And it's a really great charity just for the situation you describe. It's a weight off everyone's mm. mind. And then oh. Helen, lovely Helen, yes. replied on the thread, I'm a volunteer for the Cinnamon Trust and I walk a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel twice a week for an elderly lady who can no longer walk him herself. And I've been walking him for three years. That's yeah. lovely. It, it really is. Well, I think that's a smile and an act of yeah. kindness all in one go. Can I nominate my dog, Pixel, for the Cinnamon Trust? <laughs> Even though only 52. Even though you're only 52. No, it's not going to no. happen. Okay. And I'm just telling you now here, putting it down in writing, yeah. I'm not going to have Margot, Trish. No, don't worry. Do. Don't worry. There's no way that cat's going to North London. Good. Good.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. time to meet our special guest, the author and founder of the Women's Prize for Fiction, Kate Moss. Kate gave up a successful career in publishing in her 30s to follow her dream of becoming a writer, but it wasn't until midlife in her mid-40s that she hit the big time with her multi-million selling Longer Doc trilogy. She's continued her passion for historical adventures set in France with her latest series, The Burning Chambers. And in between all of this, Kate has been a carer for both her parents and now her mother-in-law, an experience she has written very movingly about in her new book, An Extra Pair of Hands. It is, she says, a celebration of older people and ageing and of finding joy in the smallest acts of everyday caregiving. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Kate. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. First of all, congratulations on the success of your new book, The City of Tears, which I believe came out in January and is the follow-up in the Burning Chamber series. You've said you're going to be writing four books in this series and it's going to take you 10 years to write. I mean, I can't get my head around that but you're obviously good at thinking and planning ahead I mean isn't it daunting to make that kind of commitment in public <laughs> in public that's the key, isn't it? <laughs> what an error that was no no I think it's a different sort of liberation for me this because before mm. I've never actually had a sense of a series of books that I'm going to write uh, so if you like the idea of where I'm, what I'm going to be doing in two years time or four years time I've always very much just gone with the flow and if an opportunity's come up or an idea's come up I've done it I've never been a planner and Mm -hmm. I'm not really a planner within the books but with this I just knew that it was going to be 300 years of history and that even though my books are long it would be really stretching my readers patience Mm -hmm. to try and do it all in one book Mm -hmm. so then I knew that I was going to have a series and actually it's felt really lovely to have certain sort of fixed points along my writing Mm -hmm. life over the next few years. I'm still feeling quite optimistic. I might be bored (laughs) soon, but at the moment I'm feeling pretty optimistic. (laughs) You didn't really achieve major success, I guess, as a writer until you were 45. So you were kind of in midlife. That was your big bestseller, Labyrinth. But that was your fourth book you'd given up a job at a publishing house your husband was training to be a teacher you had small children what you must have sat there at some point maybe in the middle of the night as often happens in midlife and thought the hell am I doing what this is a massive risk everyone's life is going to change because of me I am rewriting history as we speak (laughs) did you have doubts no I didn't have doubts about that 
Labyrinth was, in, in fact, my fifth book. And as I always say, overnight success at the age of 45. And thank God for that, because my life was actually pretty settled. I was with the love of my life. We had our two children. We were very happy. But what happened actually was that I was offered a big job in publishing. And I thought, okay, if you take this job, Kate, what you're saying is that you want your career, your ambition for yourself is being the CEO of a publishing company. Mm -hmm. Is that what you want? Because I'd kind of fallen into publishing and it had been great, but it wasn't what I'd ever thought I'd do long term. Mm -hmm. And so it was that moment that the risk came in. And I'm sure you know this Julia Margaret Cameron phrase, leap and the net will find you. Mm. And I've always kind of thought, okay, actually, you've just got to do it. And at the same time, a friend who is my literary agent and has been for 28 years now, I was having lunch with him. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. The book I really needed to read when I was pregnant with my daughter wasn't there. And now I'm pregnant again. And it's still not there. So you wrote it, didn't you? Well, that's yeah. right. And he just yeah. said, why don't you stop moaning and write it? And I said, well, OK, I will. In a sort of, you know, it's a kind la-la. of what Trish says. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get on with it. Get on with it. He disputes this. But in my memory, he went away and the next day rang me up and said, I've got a contract for, with Virago for you to write this book. But it's still quite brave. I mean, you're nearly 60. So this is 15 years ago when times were not as progressive for women. You're, you were still saying, do you know? what everyone's just going to have to come on on this journey with me my two small children and it is sort of financially quite a big thing and you know we're gen x women we thought we've got to be responsible we've got to make the right decision is that your personality it's interesting you put it like that i don't i don't think of myself as particularly brave but what i do think is my parents were amazing and i think that if you are lucky enough to have enormous support as a child, you know, I always grew up thinking that things would be okay. Whereas often for a lot of people, they didn't grow up with that. Mm, so nice. obviously, I do think that makes a difference. And I also always thought that, you know, come what may, my husband would find a way to make some money, I would find a way, we didn't need very much. Mm. We needed enough. It was that really, that we lived in a little house on a main road in South East London. And I thought, well, well, we'll be okay. I'll do some journalism. And I was setting up the Women's Prize for Fiction at the mm. time. Um, 25 years that's been going. Now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I always thought that it would be possible to do bits and bobs. It didn't feel brave. It felt sensible to not be tied in to the degree that then it would have been a big change. You know, I was, I was working in publishing. I was doing well, but I wasn't the boss So I wasn't giving huge amounts up. I was giving Mm. up a normal job. Mm. Mm. But if I'd taken that job, all the things you're saying would have felt more and more irresponsible whenever I tried to step out. I won't deny those first couple of years were very tough. But Mm. it's disruptive as well. Because So you co-founded the Women's Fires for Fiction in 1996. That at the time was a very disruptive move (laughs) of the equilibrium. So there is a disruptiveness about you all round, isn't there? How how did the Fiction Prize come about? You see, again, it's so interesting, isn't it? I think of that as being just common sense. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't think it made you mad. Massively popular it as a common sense decision. Oh, look, Lord, I tell you what, I'd like to think that I would have had the courage to do it in the days of social media. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that came our way, and my way in particular, just because I was the spokeswoman for it, mm. was pretty tough even then. And people had to take the effort to write you a letter or yeah. find a way mm. of emailing you via your publisher or you know their publishers or whatever. If people had been able to get at you in the way that they can now, 
and the level of vitriol that particularly women have when they're setting things up, celebrating other women. Yeah. You know, I like to think I would have had it in me to still do it. The thing with the Women's Prize for Fiction, it was kind of really straightforward. It was triggered by a Booker Prize shortlist in 1991, which had no women on it at all. We remember this. You remember Mm. this. And the thing was, it wasn't that it was all male. Because actually the judges do have the right to choose the six books that most speak to them and they think most fulfil the brief of the judging. It was that nobody noticed Mm -hmm. that it was all men because it was just, that's it, that's how it is. And a group of us, men and women, got together and said, can you imagine if they'd put out an all-female list? Everybody would have cried foul. Mm -hmm. Everybody would have said, oh, you know, it's feminism gone mad. It would have been seen as political. (laughs) Love that phrase, feminism gone mad. mad, You know, completely (laughs) deranged. Everything about my campaigning is about being positive. It's not about moaning. It's not about sitting around on your hands. It's not about attacking other people. It's about saying, okay, we think there's a problem with this, that you didn't notice there were no women. So we're going to set up something that's celebrating women. So we're not writing to the Booker Prize complaining. And so we set it up and it was a long old road and it was quite tough. And the thing that was quite depressing for me as a rather perky person and an idealistic person was to go on lots and lots of radio shows and always have a young woman put up against me. And when we would come off, she would take her mic off and say, actually, we all think the prize is really great. But my editor said I had to come (gasps) on and argue against it. And, you know, because it's like women supporting other women is still seen as Mm. very challenging. We need to compete, don't we? And the narrative hasn't changed as much in that. I always think, you know, if you think something's wrong, you've got two choices. You should shut up about it or you should do something. Mm -hmm. But attacking other people is never the way to go, I think. You know, set up something positive. And the Women's Prize for 25 years has been positively celebrating women's rights. Did you think, though, as a writer yourself, that you were putting yourself out there, that you were going to have a ton of male critics, a ton of male authors squash your career, perhaps? You know, it didn't cross my mind. But I do realise that happened without me realising it, in that after Labyrinth had come out, so that's a little, you know, quite a way afterwards, there was a huge amount on Amazon that we did later discover was being quite actively done. But I, I, I never read these things. I keep away from it. I think for your own sanity, just... Never read below the line and don't seek yourself out online. Just just do your thing. But there were lots and lots of reviews of Labyrinth which said, I don't know who she thinks she is. And they were veiled attacks on the Women's Mm. Prize, without a doubt. And my publisher tried to get a lot of these things taken down because they were clearly not about the book and failed. But I didn't anticipate that, actually. I just felt, you know, this is obvious as an ex-publisher and someone who thinks that our job as women is to support other women. Even when we don't agree with each other, men are allowed to disagree. They're not seen as traitors to men when men disagree. That's just seen as politics. But when women disagree, it's seen, you know, that there is an active attempt, as we said, to make women compete against each other for the one place, you know, that there there can Mm -hmm. be 10 men, but only one woman. So women have to fight against each other. Don't do patriarchy's job for them. And the Women's Prize is celebratory. And it's for men and women. It's for anybody who loves a good book. There was a very big attempt in the early days to make it political. But we have always just kept saying this is a literary prize. This is celebrating women's excellence. This year's shortlist, there's nobody on the shortlist that's been shortlisted before. And that's Mm -hmm. a joyous thing. New voicings. Let's talk about your success and with Labyrinth, because you were 45 and you had this incredible, massive success. You just talked earlier about you had enough and all you needed was enough. But your life, I assume, changed quite radically, did it, after that success? Yeah, changed overnight. There were two things that 
were fantastic there. Firstly, because I was middle-aged mm-hmm. and because my life was the shape it was going to be, it was all glorious, but it didn't change the person that I was or mm-hmm. my marriage, any of those things. It just felt, wow, who saw that coming? Certainly not me. But it did mean that I no longer had to have a full-time job. And I was doing lots of other work, like every writer, like mm-hmm. every novelist. I was writing around earning money. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gave me the opportunity to be a full-time writer. And that is unbelievable, actually. And I still think that, you know, the other thing that we're obviously going to come on to about what my life is like now as a carer is that it meant that when years later, we needed to make quite a lot of significant changes in our lives in order to be able to care for, you know, my father and and my mother-in-law and all of these things, that we were in a position to do it. And so for me, the success of Labyrinth really did change everything. You know, I, I sit here where I'm talking to you from now, making stuff up. I mean, that's how I make a living. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. That, I still feel, is a wonderful thing. You really don't write a novel thinking that that's going to happen. It doesn't yeah. happen much. But you haven't made up your new book. No. <laughs> um, yeah. An extra pair of hands. So that's not fiction. It's not plays. You know, it's about your personal experience caring for your parents and your mother-in-law. I mean, Trish and I have been oh, talking gosh, about this. We, we found it so week. moving. Yeah. Um, it's been very tearful. We've been WhatsApping each other our tearful <laughs> moments from it. So tell us about An Extra Pair of Hands. I'm sorry, not sorry, to make you cry. <laughs> I'm really glad that you love the book so much. It was a big decision whether to write this book. The Wellcome Trust approached me, and they have a series called The Wellcome Collection. And they are kind of the leading organisation for health and social care and all of these things. And they felt that there was a possibility for a book that was about care because care is the biggest social issue that is facing the UK at the moment. And it is successive generations of governments and politics just keep kicking the can up the road. Mm -hmm. And the longer it's not dealt with, the bigger the crisis is getting. And I feel that very, very strongly. And I thought, well, if I can join in this debate, which is about making caring visible and making, you know, the statistics obvious, 8.8 million of us are unpaid carers. There are 800,000 child carers in the UK. The carer's allowance is the lowest of all the statutory allowances. And many people don't have children. Many people are estranged from children. Many people don't have families around them. And we need to address how we are going to care with dignity and appropriate respect and honour our older population, we should be saying this is an amazing success of the NHS, that people are living longer and older and living longer, healthier lives. But it's too often framed as, well, there's a problem, everybody's living longer. But in the end, for me, being a carer is about love. Mm -hmm. And it's about all the wonderful things you could get from being a carer. Is it challenging? Is it often very, very sad? Does it change your life? All of these things, yes. But also I felt I really wanted to say it's great to spend time with your parents and get to know them as people. It is a wonderful thing that different generations can find things in each other. And so I decided that I, that I would write the book. And I was writing it during lockdown. And that was very interesting because it essentially tells the story. And it's why I call it the story of rather than a memoir of my parents moving in with us in 2009. My father um, lived with Parkinson's for many years and it was getting to a stage where my heroic ma needed more support. So she was his carer, but I was, and my husband, both of us, 
her extra pair of hands. And then for my ma, I was never my ma's carer, but we all lived together and it was like having a watching brief for her because they were married for 60 years yeah. and she had never lived on her own as an adult. And I mean, she's a brilliant, dazzling, wonderful woman, but it was about that, about how to care for somebody who really didn't want to be cared for, but did want to yeah. be part of things. And then now I am a full-time carer. So I, my, my relationship has changed with each for my amazing mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, who is a local legend. And Granny Rosie has lived with us for 28 years and was very much our extra pair of hands when the children were younger, had, as everybody does in this in the stories of ageing, um, a series of falls and is now full-time in a wheelchair. And she's so active and is always busy in doing things. But we're pals. You've known her since you were 15, haven't you? That's right. My husband and I met at school, and I think that also makes a great deal of difference. And, of course, my husband's known my parents. He cared for them, too. Yeah. He loved them very dearly. So I'm in a very privileged position for two reasons. One, because we have space and could do this. And we both work from home as writers, so we nobody had to stop working. But secondly, I loved my parents very mm. much and missed them. And I love Granny Rosie very much. And she is a great, great companion. Yeah. And all three of them were themselves up until the day, yeah. you know, my parents. You, you really lucked out, didn't you? Because a lot yeah. of people don't have that relationship they, with their parents or no. their in-laws, but they can find themselves in a caring situation well, or having to make decisions for parents, power of attorney, all that kind of thing. It's not easy. Absolutely. And also, I think another reason why I thought I would like to write the book is that, I mean, the majority of carers are women. They do step up regardless. And there are many people I talk to who are caring for people they don't even like. Many people live very separately from their other bits of the family and all of the responsibilities on that. You know, many people are trying to care for siblings who don't want to be cared for and they don't have any authority to do so, but there are issues. So my caring story is so, so lucky. I am not looking after anybody or involved with uh, caring for somebody with dementia Mm -hmm. or Alzheimer's or any sort of neurological deficits that affect how they are or whether they know you. And I think that is an absolute game changer for people. Mm -hmm. It still must be quite hard. I think one of the things that would be helpful to people listening who are in a similar situation is nobody wants to be cared for, really, do they? That's right. I shouldn't imagine Granny Rosie wants you to help her have a bath or things like that. How do you navigate that? I can't imagine doing that for my mother at all. I would imagine it would make, all of it would make her very cross. You completely put your finger on the heart of what caring is, that in ideal circumstances, but it's a partnership. They are still they, and you are still you. It's about learning a different pace, So we all, particularly women of our sort of age that were full-time workers and were quite ambitious in our work and still are and all of these things, we are used to working very hard, very fast. Uh, The idea of efficiency equals doing it quicker. When you're a carer, you have to forget all of that because it's not about getting it done. It's about getting it done in the way that makes it pleasurable. The time scale is different. So learning to be patient and to realise, of course, it would be quicker if I go in and pick something up from Granny Rosie's bedroom. But she doesn't want me to do that. I'll say, would you like me to get your glasses? And she'll go, no, I'm fine. And then that's the point, not getting it done 
because the glasses are then in the mm. kitchen where they need to be. It's about always respecting what the, matters to the person you're caring for and listening to them. So patience and listening. You can't always do this. Many people listening to this will be caring for people who do have yeah. issues with Alzheimer's and dementia. It's a completely different thing. Yeah. And I, I'm only ever speaking for me in this book. But I think that that learning of patience, you know, it doesn't matter. Things take as long as they take. And I think it's also really important, as you say, that a lot of older generation, they have been brought up to be very self-sufficient, actually. They don't want to lose their independence. And they also don't like feeling that they're wasting somebody else's time. It's about don't sit there if you're somebody that is caring remotely. So you go to visit somebody or you're taking them to a hospital appointment. Don't sit there on your phone. It's tiny things like that that I had to train myself. You know, we're sitting waiting for hours sometimes in, in a hospital. You know, we're all addicted to checking our emails. But when you do that, you make the person you're with feel that they're taking you away from your real life. But for the time you're sitting there, that is your real life. So I had to learn all of those things. But I was very fortunate because I'd watched my mother doing that. She never let the things that my father couldn't do be more important than things that he could. You've had such close relationships with old women in your life. Obviously, your mother, your mother-in-law, you talk about, as well about your godmother. And thinking about the timing of things when they came to live with you and the caring menopause, were you prepared for that? Had they spoken to you about it? Were you prepared for your own? I think it's great that lots and lots of women are talking about menopause and, and lots of women are talking about miscarriage and things like that. But I was of the generation where we didn't talk about the women's mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. because we'd spent a long time being told women can't have jobs because of the women's stuff. So we were more careful in a funny sort of way to not have those conversations. Censored yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely never talked about menopause at all to anybody. When I talked to Granny Rosie about menopause, she said, oh, I suppose I must have had one. You know, she hadn't noticed, which was very classic for Granny Rosie. Mm -hmm. With me, interestingly enough, I didn't ever really think about it, except that my skin went absolutely terrible, perimenopausal skin. And it was only when I finally went to get some help for this. I'm very much, you know, I tend to just self-medicate. I mean, I don't mean I take loads of drugs. Mm -hmm. What I mean is I just, you know, see it through. I very rarely go and see a doctor or th yeah. you know, anything. It's, well, more it's the boomer generation. They don't yeah. want to be in trouble, do they? No, no, exactly. Just, oh, you know, just get on with it. I'm not really a very vain person. I'm pretty happy with how I look. I've never thought I was going to be a great beauty or a great this or, you know, I'm just happy. All right, I'm lucky to feel happy in my skin, but I felt very undermined by having terrible skin on my face. Mm -hmm. And it was really painful. It, acne. Um, acne and really painful and unsightly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even with the best makeup in the world, not gone. Mm -hmm. And I, I was very undermined by that, which was very interesting mm -hmm. because, again, it made me think, well, you know, it's great for me to say I'm perfectly happy in my skin. That's partly because I've not really been challenged about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it made me think, oh, well, you thought you were so good with your self-image but actually you didn't have any reason not to be mm. that was really difficult in that it lasted for about seven years oh gosh wow. it started did you, did really you, early did, were you was hrt mentioned at any point no. during that no at no moment was that mentioned you know i was given some medication but it made me feel really sick all the time so it was always a kind That's of toss-up about doing that and then i suddenly realized actually that my periods had stopped and then i thought oh that'd be interesting and within 18 months of that happening my skin was fine. Looking back, I suspect that I had more 
emotional consequences yeah. of the menopause mm. than I realized because it coincided with the last few months of my father's life and the first six months of bereavement. Mm. So I suspect that some of the things that I was feeling around grief were actually menopausal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only now when I was writing the book, I suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting. That's actually coinciding. Mm-hmm. But, but I, at the time, I didn't really think about it. it you know, I, I got off very lightly. I didn't have hot flushes. I, you know, I just had this terrible skin. Mm-hmm. But that was it. So, Kate, how do you look after yourself between the career as a writer? You're very busy with that, your responsibilities as a carer. I know you sort of say, well, you just get on with things. But do you look after yourself? Do you ever prioritise yourself? Yeah, I do look after myself, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, um, I've i always thought a little bit of what you fancy does you good. I don't like the whole narrative around women that looking after yourself means depriving yourself or mm-hmm. rejecting things. But we I, don't like that either. No, I've been a vegetarian since I was a child. I never mm-hmm. liked the idea of meat. I could mm-hmm. never separate it. And my mum was very, very patient, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s. I just always thought that a piece of meat was a dead animal. Mm-hmm. And why would you put that in your yeah. mouth? I've always completely respected other people's right to choose what they do but I never liked meat and I never liked fish and I stopped eating those when I was eight and ten mm-hmm. so I've been a vegetarian for a long time before I had my periods and that is quite important because quite a lot of teenage girls become vegetarian at the wrong moment yeah they need um, ferritin yeah mm-hmm. you know whereas actually I'd already done all of that so I kind of went into puberty as a vegetarian and so I've always eaten like that do you exercise um, yeah, I do. I d- didn't when I was younger. I, we didn't. We just didn't think what of it does like Kate Moss do marathon running? Is it? No, no. Trampolining. Tra- oh, trampolining. No. <laughs> Gymnastics. I've, had, I've had two children. Um, <laughs> nobody wants that. I walk a huge amount. I started running when I was 50. I've stopped now. I jog now just because I could feel it in my knees. So in the background of this fabulous Kate Moss life, there's been this lovely man, Greg, who you met at secondary school. Have you been together that whole time since you were 15? No. Or tell us a bit about Greg and Greg I guess is, the love of your life. He is the love of my life. It, it all worked out terribly well. Um, so we were, <laughs> we were each other's first girlfriend and boyfriend at, at school. We met because I was at a, the girls' comp and he was at the boys' comp and the playing field's met in the middle and there was a hedge which was patrolled obviously by <laughs> teachers <laughs> you know, to make sure there's no hanky panky going mm-hmm. on but in fact there was a joint schools production of an Offenbach operetta called La Vie Parisienne and Greg was singing in the cast and I was violinist in the orchestra and we met through that and started going out and we went out for two years and that was you know both of our big first love and all of those oh. things then we went oh. to different universities and it mm-hmm. fizzled out mm-hmm. like things do and then and it, this sounds obviously absurd, but however many years later, eight years later, maybe, we'd had no contact at all, you know, just become grown ups, different places. Greg was living in Paris. I was living in London. My middle sister was having a baby and I was on the train one Saturday afternoon going down to be with her. A man got on and sat opposite me who just got off a plane at Gatwick oh, Airport. You're joking. I'm not joking. I know. Did you? Brilliant. Have you written this? <laughs> what? <laughs> So that is what happened. I mean, it is absurd. He didn't recognise me at all, but I did recognise him. I think women between 18 and 24, 5 change a lot more. Mm -hmm. And the last time he'd seen me, I, you know, was very much a 70s girl with flicked Charlie's Angels hair and (laughs) that kind of look, you know. Now I, you know, I was very much involved in feminist work and I was, you know, I'd got a a buzz cut and was, you know, looked very different, should we say. But I recognised him and then he did recognise me and we just talked a bit. We got off the train and my dad was waiting to pick me up. I said to my dad, 
I met Greg on the train, you know, as if this was not an extraordinary thing. Uh, could we give him a lift home? And my dad said, of course, how lovely to see you again, Greg. And oh. then we got home to where Greg's mum was living at the time, went in and Greg said, oh, you know, you remember Kate and Granny Rosie went, oh, hello, as if she'd seen me last Thursday. <laughs> and actually that was it. Oh, it's lovely. And, you know, it, we had to disentangle ourselves from mm. relationships we're in and things, but actually it was very straightforward. So when the households were all together, my parents and Rosie had also known each other for 45 yeah. years. And of course, this makes all the difference to it being possible. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's all plain sailing. Of course it mm -hmm. doesn't. And I don't, I don't want to give that impression because obviously there are lots of challenges and, and not least of all that being a carer comes with the understanding mm -hmm. of grief and that it will end yeah. with loss. And you know that this is where... The, the stories will end. They, they they have to. Do you think about your own death then? I suppose that I think as you get towards your 60s, you know, a friend of mine once said, yeah, but we're in Sniper's Alley now. Mm. Oh, God. And I thought that was quite an interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm a very melancholy it. person. Be careful. Oh, oh dear. Okay. So I do think of those things, actually, yes, because it's it's important when you have been, I would say, fortunate enough to be with people that you love unto the end as it were. Um, you are there at the moment of their death, which is an extraordinary thing. You realise that it is incredibly important that you think of the people who will be left behind, that you don't pretend as if it's never going to happen. And Rosie and I you know, talk about her funeral because she wants to be part of it, mm -hmm. actually. You know, the other day we recorded her walkout music. She's singing. So oh, a friend of ours oh. came round to record it. And I found it more emotional and upsetting than Rosie did, because for me, the thought of her not being there is really just awful. Dying well is part of living mm -hmm. well. So I do sometimes think in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I wonder what my story will be and mm -hmm. how old I'll be and mm -hmm. all of those things. I don't want it to be yet. No. I feel no. there's a lot of no. life to live. Well, you're, going, you're going to be 60, aren't you, uh, yes. later this year. Have you got any wild adventures that you want to go on in your next decade, in your next phase of life? I am really looking forward to being 60, actually. Mm -hmm. I think because... I'm not. I, I, you've got to <laughs> enthuse me with this because it's filling me with the fear of God, quite frankly. When are you going to be 60? Well, I'm younger than Trish, so <laughs> I'm 52 <laughs> and she's 53. So there you are. You see, you're years, a long you way see. off. You're well, a long way off. I you thought might... that about 50. <laughs> well, and you both look gorgeous and Thank I'm God. sure feel gorgeous. Filters on our Zoom lens. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all look better on Zoom. I've discovered that. I, I fear to go out in the real world now. <laughs> I am looking forward to being 60 because I can see looking back that for me, my 50s have been, although lots of wonderful things have happened, and, you know, the people that, apart from obviously my husband and Rosie, the people that mean the most to me are my children and their grown-ups. And I think... As you get towards 60, I do feel this sense of, and I'm, I, I honestly, we will have a conversation. We'll all go out for a drink when mm -hmm. you're 59, Lorraine. And Trish, <laughs> who is obviously older. I'll be 60 at that point. Yes. Um, we'll do that. But um, I think you'll feel a bit differently when you get closer to it. Mm -hmm. Because I think the thing about being 60 is I feel actually this does feel like a new thing. Whereas being in my 50s felt like being in my 40s. 
actually yeah. it felt the same it felt a continuation of a, a time of life whereas I kind of feel you know I looked at my own parents in their 60s and they were off on cruises and they were char- not that I'm going off on a cruise or anything because I think as Rosie said 80 is the new 60 <laughs> I mean yeah. we're all just working exactly you the same as ever. You can have a big party then. Yeah uh, yes yes I, uh, the, the, the plan is to have for close friends and family, a get together. We'll see if that's all going to be possible to happen. I I like birthdays. I like a, a party, and hopefully, because it's October, we'll be able to do something. But yeah, I'll absolutely be celebrating very visibly and noisily about that. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, listen, we wish you many happy returns for October. <laughs> we wish you continued success. We'll be reading the Women's Prize for Fiction list because it's announced in July, I think, isn't it? The winner. The winner is announced in July, the seventh of July. Seventh of July. Um, the shortlist is out now. Yeah, and it's very fresh some amazing novels on there so before you go one quick piece of advice what would you have said to 45 year old Kate Moss (gasps) keep pinching yourself (laughs) don't take it for granted (laughs) thank you And now we've reached how to win at midlife. Now, as many of us head back into the work environment, we thought we'd discuss the importance of having a work spouse or a work wife, as I like to call it. Did you know, Trish, that according to a 2018 Gallup poll, if you have a best friend at work, you perform better in your job and the business is more successful as a result? This survey also showed those with what they described as a best friend at work were twice as engaged in their roles and contributed to a 12% increase in profits to a business. So work spouses or partners in crime, as I often like to view them, benefit everyone. But what makes a good work spouse, mm. Trish? I think it's that it's that combination, isn't it, of you want this kind of almost three things that you need. You need someone who is a sympathetic ear who you can kind of go to when you're feeling super emotional or, you know, because you do bring emotion into the workplace. Um, Somebody who can actually give you advice and like you can go to with work problems. And then someone whose company you enjoy as well. So you might want to go for a little glass of vino after work. So you want to have all of those things and then from them and then, they want to have that from you as well. So it's yeah. very much a reciprocal relationship, isn't it? So, um, yeah, yes. I've had quite a, quite a few good ones over the years. Yeah. Do, you, do you think we need a little dictionary for millennials on what glass of vino <laughs> is, Trish? <laughs> It's all the Gen X phrases today for you. So because we've both done these big jobs for many, many Mm. years, we do have quite a lot of advice, I guess, around careers Mm. to offer. And I think that one of the other good reasons of having someone at work that's there for you is in a lot lot of times at work, you have to take the emotion out of the situation just for efficiency, for speed, Mm. to get things done and to, to make a good decision around things. But I think that emotion is still there. So where do you put it? So Mm. I think that's why I've always had a great relationship with one or two other women at work because I've got to take that emotion somewhere after being denied getting out Mm. in a meeting because it's not useful in a meeting so but I think there are four up to four work wives Mm. you can have there's the kind of official bestie who's the mate who you kind of gossip with she's always looking out for you she's also a bit of a social butterfly making sure you have a bit of fun there's the blunt realist I think that might be the kind of work (laughs) wife I I might be they just tell you like it is because you know that does save you a bit of time Mm. as well when someone tells you like it is Uh, this is one for you Trish you need a tech wizard work (gasps) wife don't you definitely yeah Yeah, for sure sorting stuff out for you Mm. and then you do need someone who knows where the bodies are buried (laughs) think the secret keeper who knows past history 
Yeah, yeah. When you're a manager, like we were managing big teams, weren't we, and heading up big teams. And I think magazines aren't necessarily that hierarchical where we worked, but there there was stuff that you could not tell the team because you had to keep it secret you had to keep it yeah. private you had to you had to look out for them really by not telling them yes. some of the grim stuff so you need that very senior person I think as well or somebody yeah. on your level if not more senior who's got your back and has got the same kind yes. of lookout as you do so yeah so I had a, I had a very good one of those my last publishing director Justine who as you will know Lorraine was the exact opposite of me wasn't she yes, she was she's yes Sexy and loud and skyscraper heels and stuff. (laughs) Thank you very much. But I think it, somehow it worked. It just because we would we, we'd have to go out together and present together. Yeah. You, know, you present yeah. to clients, but, and we were chalk and cheese. But somehow it just worked brilliantly. We had a lot of fun yeah. together, and um, you were sort of always finishing each other's sentences by like you know by the end of the presentation or whatever. It was like we were like yeah we're on a roll together, and we are still very very good friends now. Can I say so? Um, and Outside. that was unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, career psychologists will tell you that the other reason to have a work wife is that they are very good at creating rituals and milestones mm. and celebrating and that's really good cognitively to mm-hmm. have that that's memories that set you in a good place when you're yeah. going through a bad place at work and you need someone to ease you into the day I think so you shouldn't really feel guilty yes. on spending that sort of 20 minutes that's the thing I've missed the most not having my work wife to chat about yeah. telly and things that have happened um, but that eases you into the day and sort of sets your brain off I think you know I've had some really amazing deputies actually all mm. of whom I'm still friends with and my last deputy on style Laura she was just so much fun but she mm-hmm. would also make my tea for me and I'd make <laughs> her one as well we'd make a yeah. tea each for each oh, other that's nice. yeah um she made the right milk in us because you mm. know Trish I just like the tea bag to float near the cup yes. and wander off again there is quite a good book out at the moment Anya Heimarch the handbag oh, yes. who's a CEO yes. has written called if in doubt wash your hair which does is very helpful around how to work with people because she works with her husband they work together they, yes. go to, they go to work in the morning together it's quite useful it's just out I think at the moment and what I thought we would do is celebrate our work mm. partners spouses wives I know there's a bit of controversy saying wife but I, I'm quite comfortable with using that phrase on our Facebook group yes so I think we should do a little while you're a my good work wife yes and vice versa you'll have to have a think about it <laughs> um run it past me first and then we can ask everyone else the women yes. at work that supported them yes cheerleading that's what we yeah. really need isn't yeah. it yeah without the pom-poms and now we have reached my favorite part of the show our nostalgia noodling Shall I go first? Trish, yes, please do. Where where week? are you going? Yes. I'm on going out because thinking of going out is a little bit of what mm. we're doing a bit more. It feels like a special treat. And then I was thinking back to my childhood and wondering what my treats were, my going out treats were mm. then. And I remembered my grandma used to take us on a very nice going out trip mm-hmm. when we visited her. I lived in Cornwall, um, so we would drive and visit her. Now, she lived in Hounslow, which was near Heathrow Airport. Yes. So a Friday night treat for us was to go to the airport, <laughs> sit on the roof and watch the planes take off. Oh, that's really sweet. Is and it slightly strange? It is a bit I mean, odd. <laughs> that back in those days, it wouldn't be quite as busy and we wouldn't have been hopping on an easy jet flight every five minutes. So maybe, what I mean... Did you think it was fabulous at the time? Yeah, no, it's not that. I was quite interested when we saw Concord once take off. That was interesting. And we were surrounded by what they call metal fanciers. Do you know what they are, Uh, Is that plane spotters? Yeah, plane spotters. (laughs) 
men basically yes, yes men with binoculars yeah, but I, I was sort of reminded of it as well because i read a piece on vice mm-hmm. it's a young person's website trish about what teenagers do now there's a big yeah. report on what oh, do teenagers yeah. do now in london they take something hallucinogenic oh, Bear with me. okay uh, right. don't don't worry about this don't make it make <laughs> you get on a bus to heathrow <gasps> And because uh, it's indoors, get on the bus to Heathrow. Oh, gosh. Merrily hallucinating away. Oh, gosh. Um, they were all interviewed, these teenagers. Then they get out at Heathrow and they're all nice and warm. They sit indoors and they just watch the planes take off. That is just too weird. I know. Too it's weird. strange, it's isn't it? Too but it weird. Just, I did remember going it's with the, the um, grandma doing that. Yes, that's mm. the very. Um, I'm not sure about that. That's, now, upset. that's upsetting me now. Been? Is it upsetting well, you? Should we, ta- should we take something hallucinogenic? Get on a bus get and go to bus. Gatwick, shall we, uh, Trish? <laughs> Can you? I couldn't I think of anything worse. Get on the Gatwick Express. Frankly, um, <laughs> where right. have you been? Well, it's a bit grubby. It's a bit oh grubby. God. It's toilets. <laughs> I've been in the school toilets where there was that awful toilet paper that we used oh, to have. Do you remember? The tracing paper. Uh, the tracing paper, hard, shiny disinfected stuff that used to pull out sheet by sheet it was awful i mean it was we all know it was awful so cruel it didn't absorb did it no. it wasn't absorbent you, you might as well have oh, i don't know i don't i, I don't understand it was all just smeared everything around really and i think it was, they do that well i did read up on this because i i was traumatized myself remembering this you know the flashback and i thought well i'm going to look it up and the reason apparently is because they did all these tests to show that if they use soft paper because at those days we probably weren't that big on washing our hands i don't think it was like no. a big deal then and they would find that with soft paper you, it, your hands might go through and you might oh, end I up touching the fecal matter and then you go out the wall and you wouldn't wash your hands and you'd spread it around all over the place so anyone complaining children complaining about washing their hands yeah millennials well, complaining about the toilet paper they or had the waxy school. paper and i just bring it back to lovely old people because we have talked a lot about old people i just remember the first time i went to visit or meet neil's grandparents in their bungalow in kent do, do you want to tell this story oh uh, well no it's not, not it's yeah. not too hideous but all okay. it is to say is i went in the loo and they had the wax still had the waxy oh. the waxy paper bless them they were you, used to it from the wartime hardship do you remember when kids were small and you first taught toddlers to wipe their own bottom oh. and then you'd have to go into the loo afterwards to sort out the terrible mess and i <laughs> often remember going in and finding toilet paper sort of near the loo with, with oh. sort of holes in it and oh, i think God. Oh, no. yes yes it would have been traumatic. better to have the wax paper I so i'd have been. to go out and get them marching back in and say i think you need to wash your hands now. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and rate and review us too. And make sure you download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers because we find that really helpful. Yes, please. Please and thank you, as I say. And don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, our Instagram, or email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.